Would you turn with me now to the portion of Scripture we read together a moment ago to the book of Acts, chapter 16, and the experience and question of the Philippian jailer, verses 30 and 31. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Any preacher, any minister, we all have our own vocabulary of words. We all say things. We all put them before the congregation highlighting vital experiences necessary. We speak about the new birth. We speak about you must have faith. We talk about taking the cross, entering the narrow gate. All of these is the vocabulary of the minister and the preacher. But what do they all mean? What is the application and how do we unpack these simple vital phrases for you and me together? Faith, we might think of Abraham and he was told to do an amazing thing. He was told to take his son and offer him a sacrifice. But he had the promise attached to that son and therefore we can imagine the bewilderment of Abraham. What's this all about? But he went down the path that was given him and he sought to do what God required and God intervened. And we have it there that Abraham believed God and he believed that God would do exactly as he had promised. He was never the same again. Because he always took God at his word. One simple example of what faith might mean. So the vocabulary we have is a great teaching. It's great themes that get into the head. But these very same things must get into the heart and change us the same as that experience changed Abraham it's good to have flesh and blood examples sometimes the truths that are preached are difficult to understand and to grasp hold of and it's so much easier for us when we've got flesh and blood example let me give an example from way back I was once in the Boy Scouts and we always went to camp and there was always the campfire and there was always the, the marshmallows that were put in the fire. And some of the youngsters that came to the camp for the first time, we always told them, be careful, the marshmallows will burn you and they're hot. They came and they stuck them on the stick and they put them in the fire and they put them in their mouth and what did they find out? They learned the hard way that marshmallows are hot. Not only just told it, but they felt it. 
And it's the same with ourselves. We can be told gospel truths, but we've got to feel them and know them for ourselves. God here is breaking into the life of a sinner. It's a deep, it's a powerful, it's a personal experience because this man was brought face to face with his need of salvation. We can imagine a jailer, he would have many, many layers on his life that would be protecting him, hardening him for the job that he was doing. And God breaks through all of these layers and brings to the surface to this man essential spiritual truths. And that experience which he went through is the same experience we need today for ourselves. We're living in a society where the things of the spirit and of the soul and of God and of salvation are being dismissed, pushed to the edge, perhaps even deliberately forgotten and neglected. But we've got to remind ourselves that God is able to break into people's lives today as he broke into the life of that jailer. Lives that today are closed, steeped, stained, ignorant. The least likely of candidates was that jailer, but that was the one the Lord saved and brought to know his son. And God did it then, and God can do it now. Just to, before we get into the passage itself, there are some things we need to take for ourselves out of this experience. God is a God of activity. It's he that starts the spiritual process with this man. It's he that starts the same spiritual experience for you and for me. God speaks to you and to me. He reassesses us. He draws back the curtain and he makes us familiar and he makes us to know things that we've pushed to one side about our spiritual status and standing before God. God speaks. But God also speaks in a variety of different ways to different people. All we can think of is the very examples that are given to us in this chapter 16. What did God, what said about Lydia? Lydia whose heart the Lord opened. That gentle, quiet method of the Lord dealing with her. And you come down a few verses to this person. We've got now the Philippian jailer. And what a contest is set up for us here. A violent interruption. A disturbance in this man's life. He was taken by the collar and he was shaken to the core. That's the way God dealt with him. A contrast to God dealing with the, with the lady. A variety of testimonies of God's way of dealing with us. And we must, we must never set limits upon what God can do or way he works. He knows what's best suited for me. And he knows what's best suited for you. And sometimes at testimony meetings, they're good, but we've always got to recognize their limitation. People will speak about how, where, by whom. And all of these details 
they're all very personal. But the most important issue and the most important element to emphasise is, and the question has to be put, yes, it doesn't matter where, when or how, the question is, has it happened at all? Has God broken in and spoken to you and to me? God activity, God's variety. But also there's a lesson here about God's sovereignty. Paul and Silas had to go to prison. They were beaten up and they were battered. Why? Why? Because in that prison there was one of the Lord's people and that one person had to hear this gospel. But how were they going to hear it? How were they going to hear it? How were they going to hear it in prison? This is the way. The wisdom of God's perfection of dealing with every one of his people. God's dealings with harm. This jailer. Why did Paul and Silas have to go there? Because it had to happen this way. If you go to the book of John's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 4, the passage there deals with the woman at the well of Samaria. But before it all unfolds, in verse 4, we're told something very important. We're told the Lord must needs pass that way. There was a compulsion upon the Lord laid. He had to go that way because he had to meet that woman. The same can be said about this couple, Paul and Silas. They had to be beaten up, had to go into prison because they had to speak to this Philippian jailer. You, me. Why do things happen to us the way they do? Things that we don't understand. Perhaps here we're given a little gleam of light to answer that question. We can even put it very personally like this. Why are you here this morning? Or even more importantly, why am I here this morning? The questions about God's sovereignty and the wisdom of God's actions in your life and in mine. So, simple thoughts, first of all, by way of introduction. Let's look at this man. And we're going to look at three different windows into his life and experience. We have here a careless man. We have here a convicted sinner. We have here a converted saint. Three simple pictures we're confronted with, against which we've got to judge our own life. Where are we on this spiritual spectrum? A careless man? Convicted sinner? Converted saint? Let's press the rewind button and come back to the beginning then. And we have here, first of all, a careless man. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations were shaken, the doors were opened. The keeper came out, and he saw the doors open, and he would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. It was one of these days, perhaps, 
when there was a late arrival of the wagon coming from this market's place. Inside the wagon there were two men that had been beaten up late in the day. Why? Because they caused a disturbance. They were going against the culture and the norms of Roman society. Their teaching things were told in verse 21. For us to observe? No. These things exceedingly trouble our city. And there was this groundswell that was introduced. They're doing it being Jews. So they were beaten up and put in prison. They were severely beaten. Many stripes were laid against them, we're told. And yet what happened when they were put into prison? They were put into the innermost sanctum. Not only were they put into the innermost place, but just to be on the safe side, their feet were put in a stock. Now you've got to ask yourself the question, is all that not a bit OTT, over the top, a bit extreme? They weren't likely to escape. Just look at them, beaten as they were. Why did this happen? It happened because these rulers were afraid. They were afraid of what Paul was speaking and saying. And the effect it already had. There was this one example, this notorious example of the woman who was possessed with a spirit. And they spoke, Paul and Silas, to that woman and cast out the spirit. And the spirit left. Now that was a talking point in the marketplace. That was a talking point as they went along the streets. That was a talking point as they sat around meal at night. Have you heard what happened to the woman? The gossip? What they spoke about? They spoke about things. What are we told? They came and they spoke about the way of salvation. Very well. Let's make sure that we keep them safe. There's something special, something different about Paul and Silas. Supernatural words spoken. Guard them carefully. So what happened? The building was shaken. What was said was suddenly having a very personal, very practical exhibition. All of the building, the the prison, the, the most established, stable thing in the community, it was shaken and coming apart at the seams. And that jailer was filled with terror. A frightening experience for all, but especially for him. Why? Because he was scared. Ruin was staring him in the face. He was responsible for the safety of the prisoners. He had to keep that prisoner safe. And they escaped then. His life was laid on the line. He was staring down the barrel of a gun. Why? Because he had to give an account to the Romans for the safety and the security and the keeping of these two. And this jailer was scared of the Roman law and its effects. He was scared of what it meant for him. He was aware of giving account to them, but he had no thought whatsoever of giving account to God. He was afraid of the Romans, 
more so than he was afraid of God. He was driven to desperation by this unexpected calamity. He was driven to think about suicide. He had no care for his soul. He was prepared to risk its loss. He was reckless about eternity, preparing to face it without a second thought, without any preparation for it. He didn't give tuppence for his soul. A careless man, thinking more of what men would say about him than what God would say about him. How much preparation do we have for our, of our souls today? What account will we give to God? And what priority do we have for that in our lives? Energy? Preparation? What concern do we have about our soul? We hear today, we're coming more and more into it, the preparation, the holiday hypes that are set before us as we're coming into better weather and to better seasons. We're told about pension plans that need to be made up and set out in all the greatest details. The preparation is made for all of these things. But what about eternity? What preparation is made for that? How much preparation have we made to be here this morning? How much time have we spent in preparing our soul to hear what God has to say to us? And particularly, to put it more finely like this, we've got to prepare our body but we've also got to clear our minds to hold on to what God is saying to us. The clutter of Saturday can cloud the effects of Sunday. The clutter of Saturday can cloud the effects of Sunday. What we did yesterday afternoon and last night lingers with us to this morning unless we're careful and prepare ourselves preparation this man lacked it do we do we hold on to what God is saying or do we let go what God has said a careless man the first picture we look in the mirror do we see a reflection of ourselves? We move on then to the second image. Not only a careless man, but we're given the picture of a convicted sinner. What am I going to do, he says. He's been through troubles and Psalm 119 tells us, It was good for me. It was good for me that I was afflicted because I learned certain things. That's what the psalmist says in verse 71. The same can be said about this man here. He's been through dramatic, traumatic experience. And it was good for him. The same can be said about ourselves. The personal diaries we've got of God dealing with us. Can we say that about ourselves? It was good for me. 
that I went through all these things. Because that's the way the Lord used to bring me to my spiritual senses. To bring me to the Savior. He began to tremble. But the total apathy that he once had has been replaced by a deep concern he now feels. Despair gripped his soul and opened the door for the entry of spiritual truths. For the first time ever, perhaps, spiritual truth began to sink into his own life, coming home to him personally. What were these men? Well, we're told already that they talked about the way of salvation and perhaps this jailer would say, yes, yes, yes. And he dismissed it. And he would have kept on dismissing it until this experience came upon him. But now it hit him powerfully. And this man has an anxiety and a concern for his soul. And that's a quality that is missing in our society. But sometimes we can see it, it's missing in our churches today as well. We can get people into church. We can get people involved in the organization and in the things that the church does. But unless we bring people in with a concern for their souls and their souls are awakened to the danger that we're in, they will never ever have any interest in Jesus Christ, our Savior. That concern has to be the foundation on which a true spiritual work is built and developed. Yes, there's a variation with every one of us, each with our character and our experiences. But there are certain factors and certain experiences that are common to everyone. And this is one of them. Am I being concerned? Have I been wakened? Am I convicted about my relationship with God? It exposes and lays bare a spiritual dimension and proportion of our soul. Something we've smothered, something we've never ever thought about comes to the surface. We seek rest for a troubled soul. We've never been troubled before, but we are now. We've never asked the question before, but we're asking it now. We've many services we've been at and we've heard maybe this very text been taken and we've said, what's the minister talking about this morning? And you don't know it. You don't know what has been said until we have this one experience and God begins to quicken our soul. And we're struck by our poverty and we're struck by our nakedness and we're struck by the vulnerability and the weakness of our life and we've got nothing to boast of and nothing to plead and our hands are empty and our mouth is silent before the demands of our holy God. We're spiritual bankrupts. Do we know that? That's what this man felt. And it is a very, it's a very personal thing it's nothing if it's not that. This man is isolated as we all must be. You know, you never become a Christian 
with a crowd. You never become Christian with a crowd. The eye of God singles you out. The hand of God separates you away. The word of God weighs you and assesses you. We've spoken there at the beginning of the service about the narrow gate. Well, you try going through a narrow gate. You cannot take baggage in your hands. And you cannot go through that narrow gate in a crowd and in the company of others. That narrow gate highlights and emphasizes this individual personal dealing with God. You cannot go through that gate depending on your father's faith, your mother's prayers. You cannot go through that gate saying, oh, I'm a member of a Christian family. I go to such and such a church. Oh, look at all the surprises I've got from the Sunday school. None of that washes. You're alone. You're on your own. You stand before God. And what is your boast? And what can you speak of? Personal. But it was also spiritual. This man, when he came out, first of all, he was looking around and he saw the doors open and he saw the prisoners free. And to begin with, the gaze was just round about him. But very quickly the gaze was shifted to an altogether different direction. Not just on the horizontal, but he started to think about the vertical. What about God in all of this? Things that once were a priority have been set now to the side. The shaking of the building, yes, severe as it was, there was now a more important shaking of his soul. He understood he is to die. And he's not ready for it. We've talked already about preparing for different events and different experiences. <clears throat> How many people prepared to go to the football last night, yesterday? How many people prepared to do that and other things yesterday? How much preparation done for meeting God today? What's the uppermost thing as we've come to church this morning? Are we burdened? Do we have a spiritual proportion to our quest and purpose for being here? We, I've said this often to myself, more so than to anyone else. We've got to be prepared to leave the things of time and sense outside that door when we come here to do spiritual business with God. Because that's the reason for our gathering. The things that we've neglected for so, so long, suddenly become a priority with us. And it's a very basic, basic issue. It comes down to the wire. We're not concerned about, in the library next door there, we're not concerned about all of the books on theology, the Hebrew and the Greek and the apologetics and the church history. None of that matters just now. The simple question is, am I saved? Are you? Are we right with God? 
How can I be delivered from the darkness and the bleakness and the wretchedness and the burden and the guilt that I've suddenly discovered in my soul that God has shown me and told me about? A convicted sinner. It's spiritual, it's personal, it's basic. One last thought before we move on. It's urgent. It's urgent, the issues that are at stake and at risk here this morning. There's an, inner, there's an eternity at risk. Souls are at stake. Where will we spend that eternity? It comes down to a very simple question. We perhaps don't like saying it, but it's got to be said. Where will we spend eternity? In heaven or in hell? It's as simple as that. There's nothing else needs to be said. That's what this man was facing. The urgent, important issues. The same issues we support and face. The same issues we face here today. We're not spectators. Yes, we can sit and we can listen, but we're all of us personally involved. We might not like the question asked. We might try to run from it. Jonah tried to run. And God was waiting to him wherever he went. We might try to run. And we try to get to sleep. And there in the pillow beside us when we close our eyes at night is that one question. Are you right with God? And then when you wake and open your eyes in the morning, it's the same companion that's there in the pillow to meet you. Are you right with God? That's the question that's important for you and for me. When God works in us to show to us what we truly and really are, sinners in need of salvation. So yes, we've got a careless man. Yes, we've got a convicted sinner. The last and third point, we have here a converted saint. What must I do to be saved? Okay. Let's listen to some of the answers that you might be given today. Oh, it's night time. It's midnight. Listen. The daylight of a new day will scatter all this terror. Go to bed. Forget about it. All this terror, all these impressions, all these questions you've got. The day will come and the night will pass. And all of this will be in memory. No. Or maybe there's another question, another answer rather to the question. Look, you've been altogether too superstitious on this matter. That's what the heathen might say. That's the questions the heathen might ask. But wait a minute, you're a modern day man. You're a 21st century man. You're sophisticated. You're polished. You're the master of your life. Don't be disturbed by these thoughts and these issues. No. Or maybe there's another way of answering the question. Listen, friend. Some things might need to be changed. There's a little tidying up of your life, a little change in your habits of what you did. There's a little polishing of something in a corner that needs to be attended to. If you're troubled about it, just go and do it, and then you'll be all right. No. There is only one proper appropriate 
fulsome answer to this question. What must I do to be saved? The one answer that is effective and vital is this one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God has effected a complete and perfect work of salvation and forgiveness. We are all different. Every one of us in the things that are in God's book against our name. We are all different in the things that we've done and the things that are wrong. But the salvation that Jesus Christ achieved and accomplished is measured exactly for the needs of your soul and mine. Full measure. Complete in all its detail. Because that's what Jesus Christ takes to the cross. Has dealt with on the cross. Covering it all with his blood. So that there is the offer of forgiveness. Made this morning. To as many as believe in him. We're commanded to trust. To commit all our interests to him. Yes, the things that we've done wrong, in your life and mine there's a cupboard and it's full of bones. And the devil will come along every now and again and he'll give these bones a good rattle. And we're concerned by what he shows us and wakens to us. Things in the past that we're ashamed of. And how do we cope with that experience? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And we look to Christ and his blood to cleanse us, and we look to him and his intervention and his intercession for us, and we look to him for that pardon and that peace. That's the work of salvation. We know it many a time. We've known this gospel. We've heard it. It's here. But if it's here, it only makes us educated sinners. If it comes to our soul and we believe in the message, it makes us converted saints. That's what happened to these people. We read in verse 32, And they, that is Paul and Silas, spoke to the jailer the word of the Lord. And to all that were in his house. They explained the basic things to this man. Ignorant as he was, he knew nothing. And he was told the vital things for his soul. We're told not just simply to believe. But we're told to believe on. Filling out who Jesus Christ is. What he's done. What he's achieved and what he offers and gives to everyone who believes in him. No one else can do that. No one else has got that rich experience to meet the needs of your soul and mine. Yes, the devil believes. But the devil is not saved. We need to venture our soul. To trust and to rely and to look to the Lord. Hand everything over to him. To do so without doubt. But with a firm conviction that we're building and going on a good solid foundation. We're believing on him. In him. 
what is done on my behalf on the cross. That's what's required of us, that level of commitment. And there is this great promise. We shall be saved. We've been told what the gospel is. We've been told the A, B, C of the gospel time after time. Very well. Now come and taste the sweetness to your soul of what Jesus Christ has done. Your conscience has been disturbed from the hands, the nail-pierced hands of a saviour that is held out to everyone who believes in him. This great gospel message. Alone before God you might be. Who is going to speak on your behalf? Hebrews tells us the Lord there puts his arms extending them out and it says, I and the children the Lord has given me. In a sweep of his hands he gathers together every one of his people. To them his work is applied and on their behalf he intercedes. And before that high, holy, great white throne, he will speak out and represent them. That is a source of peace and pardon. And all that we can say, John chapter 9, a man was born blind and they asked questions of everybody round about him. How do you explain this? How do you explain this? How do you explain this? And eventually at the end in 25, John 9, 25, the man looks, stop. Stop. One thing I know, once I was blind, now I can see. That was the priority for this man. Is it a priority with ourselves? Is that the concern that is uppermost in our soul? What must I do to be saved? Is that what we're chasing after? Once I was blind. Now I can see. Do we, or oh, we know that we're sinners. But do we feel it? Think of the marshmallows again. Do we hear God speaking to our soul and saying it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to hear the bad news before we will ever appreciate the good news. We're told, Isaiah tells us, he is as a root out of a dry ground with neither form nor comeliness. Is that the way we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we say, he is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul? Which image best represents you and me, as God speaks with and deals with us here this morning. We've had three pictures we look at and we can see something of a reflection of ourselves. The Lord now puts the issue simply before us. Is he the fairest to our soul? Or do we pass by without seeing anything to attract us? Let us pray.
Gracious Lord and God, as this morning we have handled these great spiritual issues concerning our soul and our relationship with thyself, seal them to our hearts and set them in our mind, our memory and our soul, we pray. Each one of us go in our separate ways in a moment. Part not from us, Lord, but awaken a spiritual concern within us for that is what we need and our society and our nation round about us in these days and for that we pray in Jesus name Amen, Amen. <clears throat> We close this morning by singing from Psalm 37 and we're singing from verse 3 to verse 7. Psalm 37, verse 3 to verse 7. I'm sorry. Again, an answer that is quite appropriate for the question that was asked of the Philippian jailer. Verse 3. Set thou thy trust upon the Lord, and be thou doing good. And so thou in the land shalt dwell and verily have food. Delight thyself in God. He'll give thine heart's desire to thee. Thy way to God commit. Him trust it bring to pass shall he. And like unto the light he shall thy righteousness display. And he thy judgment shall bring forth like noontide of the day. <clears throat> Rest in the Lord and patiently wait for him. Do not fret for him who prospering in his way success in sin doth get. Psalm 37, 3 through 7, set thou thy trust upon the Lord. <clears throat> set thou thy trust Yeah. Uh -huh.
now may grace, mercy, and peace from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon and abide with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.